I'm Carlo, Carlo Pietro Sanfilippo, and this is my podcast. With this project, I want to explore the means, methods, tools, and examples of living on purpose, living the life we want, doing the things that light us up, things that make us feel like we're alive, growing, making a difference, and enjoying the process along the way. Welcome to It's the Journey. Okay, everybody, welcome back to It's the Journey. As always, I'm your host, Carlo Pietro Sanfilippo. And so welcome back to all my return listeners. And if this is your very, very first time, thank you for joining me. So as you know, or you soon will, my focus here uh, with this podcast is to bring you stories from real people just like you that are working hard to say yes to their dreams and often in the process to be the change they want to see in this world. And my next guest uh, is an awesome example of both of those, Amanda Oliver. So Amanda has a book coming out next March that is called Overdue Reckoning with the Public Library. And so she wrote about this book as a, as um, from her experience of being a library over about a six year period. And uh, in the course of doing, being a librarian, librarian and doing some interviews and research. Um, she had worked in a, um, in a high poverty area in Washington, DC and had some experiences that she wanted to share. Um, and as I was prepping for this, one of, the, one of the quotes that I heard from her on an interview she did on NPR, she said, um, I'm trained in information organization, but nothing, nothing I learned in my master's program helped me with being what a librarian actually looks like which was caring for patrons. So those of you who know me and have been following me know that I care very much about libraries. And I saw this is very fascinating to me because this is an aspect of it that I wasn't aware of. And um, so I wanna dive into that as well as Amanda's journey. But before we bring Amanda on, let's her, um, go through a little bit of her background. Uh, Amanda has been featured in the LA Times, Vox, Electric Literature, Medium, the rumpus. She's been interviewed about libraries and being a librarian on NPR and CBC radio and the Associated Press and American Library Magazine. And Amanda graduated from an MLS program in sunny Buffalo and has an MFA and the MFA program in uh, UC Riverside. And she grew up in New York. And now she's living in the Mojave Desert near Joshua Tree, where she is right now. So with all that, let's bring on Amanda. Amanda, thank you so very much for joining me today on It's the Journey. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Carlo. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, with, uh, with what I want to do, I want to kind of dive into your journey and I'm super curious. I'm always, it's always fun to me when someone says yes to something. So, uh I'm curious from you, like, was it always your goal to write a book or was it your goal to be a librarian or did you become a librarian and said, ah, I have to write this book or you wanted to write a book and you discovered it accidentally as a librarian. So like, let's talk about all that stuff. That is a great question. Uh, so I am one of those people who ever since I was a little kid, I knew uh, I wanted to be a writer. That was the thing always. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was like 
four or five, I cleared out the closet in my bedroom and I like awesome. set up a little area because I thought I knew a writer had to have had to have a, a space. space. Yep. And so before I could really had much to write or say, uh, I had my little my little writer's nook. Um, awesome. And then I was always an avid reader. And then um, when I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I, I kind of bounced between a few career ideas. So I actually started out going to school to be a social worker. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I needed to pass biostatistics to become, uh, there was like a five-year track where you could get a master's in five years. And I had never failed anything in my life. And I failed biostatistics twice. Oof. Uh, so that, and that was enough, you know, when you're, when you're 18, 19, at least for me, I didn't have that voice in my head yet. That was like, try again or, or get a tutor. You know, I just was like, oh my God, this is the first real kind of, uh, F I've ever gotten in life. And so, so I abandoned that, um, career path and I ended up becoming an English major. And again, um, Somehow in my brain, I associated English with more of a creative writing track. And of course, uh -huh. it's very different. It's, it's a study of literature. And there actually wasn't a creative writing track uh, at the program I was in. So I did this English degree. I'm really thankful I did that. I loved that department. And then I sort of graduated and was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? I don't know mm -hmm. what to do. Like, all the jokes are true. Like, what do you do with an English degree? I didn't know. And I was managing, or I was working at a, at a sushi restaurant in Buffalo and uh, I did that for about a year. And I kind of, I kind of came in and helped out a little bit in like a managerial way. And then I was, um, I was at a coffee shop and I was talking with a friend about what to do next. And a woman overheard the conversation and kind of heard me talking about, like, I wanted to be a writer. And I, I had thought about being a social worker and, and uh, she actually suggested, uh, what about being a librarian? And kind of a, like, I just had a moment and was like, huh? And I remember I looked up the salary of a librarian and I was like, yeah. that looks good. And yeah. I love books and I love reading and I love writing. Like this seems like a marriage of a lot of my favorite things. And I applied to uh, my master's program and I got in and then okay. very quickly, you know, it's a two-year program. Uh, was on the path to to being a librarian and uh, MLS programs usually pick like a, a sect so public libraries uh, special libraries which would be like um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a library so that would be like a special librarian okay um, academic librarians and then school librarians and so the the track that I went for was uh, school libraries and uh, I'm qualified to be all of the other types of librarians school librarians go uh, extra and do like a really intense practicum. And so that, yeah, that's the very, that's the whole story, I guess, of how I, how I landed there. But always, always, always on the side, I was writing. So any okay. free time that I had, and I was still publishing and I was doing all that, but um, it just, it didn't feel like a feasible, I had a voice in my head saying this. And then I also had outside voices saying like, you can't make a, you can't make a living as a writer. You need to have a, a you know, quote unquote, real job. Um, and I was like, I tried to pick something, I guess, maybe akin to, to writing and librarian was like, you know, the coziest place I thought I could, I could land. And yeah. I did. Yeah. I, I, that's so great. Cause that, like you said, that that's, 
that's something that everybody faces, whether they're 18 and they're getting out of college and they're go or they're 20 something and they're just out of college of like, what do I be? What, what do I do? And so much of school doesn't really train us for that. And, and, and so many times it's like, it's, it's cool that you had that drive I, I love i wish there were pictures of you sitting in your writer's nook as a, as a five-year-old <laughs> that would be great that'd be a great uh picture for the for the show um, i actually have one that i can send you of me oh my gosh that'd be amazing me, yeah i can send it to you <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's incredible it's um, i'm happy that exists uh but yeah so many times it, it's maybe as, as children we know and then like people will, people will kill your dream and tell you, you can't do that. Or we kill it ourselves. And then we just, you know, if, if you had, old. if you had passed your social, your, your social, the, the stats class, maybe you'd be a social worker and be happy with that. Or that's what you would be doing, but maybe you would never have been able to, to fulfill that dream of being a writer. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that I, I would have. I mean, there's no way to guess that, but yeah. No. And what ended up happening, I mean, having an interest in social work and, and having taken some basic courses ended up being very helpful once I did get into uh, library work, which I, which I didn't know at that time. And I think that's a more, that's more common knowledge now that, um, and I believe that there are some programs in the country now, MLS programs that uh, combine uh, social work or they work with social work uh, departments because that's such a big um, side of library work too. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that we, especially in the United States, that we we do K to 12 and then the expectation um, is that you go right on to college and you, and you know what you're doing. And, um, you know, I'm 30, I'm going to be 36 a week from today. And uh, I still sometimes, I'm not really sure I know what I'm doing, but uh, the writer piece has always been there. That's like the intrinsic since I was a kid uh, thing that, that, that lives in me that I've like sort of battled my whole life to, to hold on to and, and keep alive. Um, certainly with voices and uh, internal and external trying to uh, sabotage that. And as I've gotten older, it's more the internal voices to be honest than, than any external. Yeah. Well, cause those get so ingrained in us. So we carry them, we carry them with us long after the person who even said them, they may not even be alive anymore or may not know we exist anymore. And they're off doing whatever they're going to do. But then we carry those stupid, <laughs> stupid things no, in our head. Those things stick. Those <laughs> like things ghosts. Stick with you. And one of those, and I won't say who it was, but I, I got to have a conversation with one of the people who said something to me that really made me think I'll never be able to do this. And uh, they didn't remember saying it, mm. you know, so it's like, yeah, I don't yeah. think people necessarily do that with malice but it is amazing what what outside voices um stick with us and and change the path of your life for for better a lot of the time and then sometimes for for worse and and uh unlearning those voices yeah yeah that's why it's so important you know be, be kind be kind be honest be helpful if you see something say it you know it's so the, the little seeds that you're planting the the, the, you may not even know that person, but 20 years from now, that may impact their life in a way that, that we'll never know. Oh, yeah. um, so I want to get into, because, all right, so you were successful in becoming a librarian, but that didn't guarantee that you'd become a writer. So let's get to, we'll get to that in a minute. 
I want to, I want to know, cause I'm, I love libraries too. Like why, why do you love libraries? Like what's besides, I know you like reading and you like books, but like, what do you feel like when you go into a library? Yeah, there's actually um, oh, the beginning of one of the chapters in my book is just describing, trying to describe the feeling of, of walking into uh, my first library. So I was lucky enough that for the first like four and a half years of my life, we lived across the street from a public library. Wow. Um, and it was just, just the most magic uh, place, um, you know, walking in and, and the hum of the water fountain with that, like ice cold water. And we had, my dad was a, a sexton, a custodian for, uh, a church and, um, his main form of payment for that work was the house that we lived in. And my mom wasn't working. So we had my, my dad's income was like $4,000 annually, in 1985 when I was born. Mm -hmm. uh, so the house was the major thing that we had, but it was like very hard to heat and very hard to keep cool. And so, you know, the library like had, you know, it was blasting heat in the cold, you know, Buffalo months. And then it was cool in the summer. And it was like, and that's just the entryway. And then it's like, yeah. you turn to the right and there's like the wooden circulation desk. And, and you know, we, we still had the card catalog, those like beautiful yep. old, with the drawers and I remember just sitting and like running my finger under the brass like hook uh -huh. of, the, of the card catalog and before I could really read pulling them out and looking for letters that I recognized and like and I just knew it was a space where there weren't you know there were there were basic rules to to follow but it was sort of like oh my god this is this is a place that holds all of my favorite things which has been books forever um and, and it's like made for that. And it's made for people who love reading and it's made for people who, you know, presumably love writing and research. And just like, it was such a magic place to me from, from such a young, uh, young age. And then of course, and that stayed, I mean, all throughout uh, elementary, middle, high school, the library was like my happy place um, in the school. I would still go to the public library. And then college also, like that was where I, I spent my, my study breaks or if I had big gaps between classes, I was at the library at UB. Um, and then, you know, that just such a love, like from as young as I can remember going to story time as probably, you know, an infant or toddler up until, you know, I became my own librarian. They're just, I love them. And then, yeah. and then the way that I love them now that I've worked in them is, is, is quite different. Right. Mm -hmm. So those were very personal, what they meant to me. And I think are quite common, you know, like nobody says, I don't like libraries. I don't know a single person who doesn't like libraries. Um, so I think they're these very beloved institutions, but once I got out there, um, and became a librarian, uh, I saw what, what other, um, sort of societal functions they were, um, serving, serving and that, yeah. Yeah. And that became really interesting. And so I was in the school libraries for on and off for about five and a half years before I, I switched to the public library. So for sort of my final year um, as a librarian, but, you know, I worked in the DC public schools at the time I was working there. It's like tied with Detroit and Los Angeles for, you know, worst school district in the country. Um, and I worked in a title one school. So uh, more than 75% of my students live below the poverty line. And then just my idea of libraries totally started to 
shift. Sorry, I live near a military base and they're they sometimes do flyovers, which they're doing right now. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I heard some noise. I'm like, is this a parade? No, my <laughs> table started shaking. When I first moved out here, I, I thought they were earthquakes because it's California. <laughs> I didn't know. But um, yes, I live I live near a military base and they occasionally do uh, test runs of things. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. <laughs> are, they, are they harassing they you? Again, so good to cover that. Uh, yeah anyway so school libraries um that was a really interesting perspective on you know i don't know if you're like standardized testing and um teachers being held accountable to standardized testing as a librarian i'm not i didn't have those high stakes so the library became a space where kids like there was no grade involved right so it was like a, a, and i tried to create an environment where they knew they could come in. You know, I had stuffed animals everywhere. I had soft chairs. I had reading nooks. I had audiobook listening corners. I tried to make it this sort of beloved, safe space. Um, and I think I was I was quite successful in that. And you know, I often sort of butted heads with with principals at the school um, who wanted me to be doing kind of more rigorous work, and I I was more interested in like they a lot of these kids have very difficult lives. Um, might I give them 45 minutes once a week to just enjoy reading and research yeah. um, and kind of have a moment to breathe. So that became, I loved libraries for in the schools for being separate from all that. Um, and that's what the bulk of the, the book about is about, um, is just, I worked in a very high poverty neighborhood. The central branch of the DC Public Library had closed for a renovation. The branch that I was at was the next closest. Um, homeless shelters in DC had been shuttling uh, people to the central library, which is huge. Um, daily and then when the library closed they weren't really sure where to go and so my branch and a couple others nearby absorbed that and so when I started my job there uh it was every day there was you know 20 30 people most of them unhoused um waiting outside the library each morning to come inside and we'd unlock the door and you know I spent I spent five days a week uh, eight hours at a time with often the same groups of, of people um, who the library was, was total refuge uh, for them. And uh, a question I used to ask all the time back then was to friends was, you know, where else do they have to go? And, mm -hmm. you know, common answers were like the park or museums. And, you know, my pushback was always, you know, Yes, but winter in DC gets quite cold. Um, park, you know, is out in the elements. Um, museums have much stricter sort of behavior rules and security um, that they're going to be kicked out much more readily. And then here you have libraries that have uh, temperature control, access to fresh water, access to clean bathrooms, access to Wi-Fi. Um, and beyond those basic needs, you know, it's access to community. I mean, uh -huh. It's touching base with the same patron every day and starting to learn their their life and asking, you know, you know, how did that job application go or how are you doing? Um, and so the job became very much that this this sort of insular community 
at the at the library that was fulfilling really really basic needs uh, for people. So that NPR quote that you that you mentioned. Um, I think at that the time that I gave that interview, I was still quite um, angry about some things. But but what I hear in that now is actually, um, it it's a it's a positive, just a whole other a whole other perspective on libraries that I had never had before. Um, right. And so that is where the the roots of the book came from. Is how in the world did we get to a place where so many people, um, this is this is virtually one of the only places they have to be where they're having very basic um, needs met with dignity, with respect, with mm -hmm. care, being addressed by their name, being treated, you know, um, like like human beings as as, as they are and members of um, society. So that you know once i started working at that at the branch um that was the beginning of of the book piece of things okay well so that's interesting it's so like from like your childhood and i think a lot of people have that a similar experience yeah we're going to the library first of all i remember i i didn't live close to a library so like the, my earliest experiences were more like my school library but yeah it's like books were precious there wasn't the internet information the only we had a little encyclopedia set that was from years before i was born that it was like one set of encyclopedias and it said it said in there one day man will land on the moon yeah <laughs> that's how old they were yep. and i was oh, I, I was born after, that. Story about that after when i when i started at my very first school library um there's a process called weeding where librarians uh, get rid of outdated books and when i inherited the, the school library no one had done that in about 60 years I found a book <laughs> in that exact language and it was um I think the title of it is no the last page said someday men will land on the moon and I was like oh no and I had to take it out of the collection because like a, a four-year-old or a five-year-old reading that is going to be like we haven't done that yet but I I still have that in my my personal uh collection that's anyway awesome. maybe that's why there's like moon landing and conspiracies someone's like see, right? see? <laughs> look in this library this is proof like, no. it's in the look library the copyright date. No. <laughs> so, uh but yeah so like yeah, this experience of like, as a little child, when we, my mom taught us to appreciate books just because she did. She was always reading something and always looking up things and whatever. And so if we went, so we went on a road trip, she'd always make sure we had books. So, but I had this tiny little library in my, in my closet, you know, this, my books that I kept organized the best I could, you know, so going into this space that had thousands of books that I could check out whatever the limit was. And I had to be responsible with them. And, you know, there was like, there was this big fear of the librarian of like messing up and having to pay a fine and bring in, you know, uh, there was something really, really magical about that. And same thing as I got older and in, in high school and then in college, I spent hours and hours and hours studying in the library and just, it was wonderful. And so, yeah, I think like you said, I think many people have that experience. Um, but like you said, the people who are unhoused, to, to have a space 
it, where, where you can just sit and, and, or like you said, talk to people or sit and read or look at a magazine or use the stinking bathroom. Like our, our, our city is just has a, there's, there's no, there's hardly any public bathrooms anywhere. And like, you know, our, our public transportation system, I've been trying to see if I can get by without a car. And I became really aware, like there's no bathrooms. Like one day I had to, I had to walk like five or six blocks to a Starbucks, which meant I had to buy a $4 drink to use the bathroom. And I could afford to buy a $4 drink, but I'm like, this is, what if I, what if I couldn't, what if I couldn't? And then that's why like the, I don't know if people in St. Louis know this, but like the number one ticketed item on our train system is public urination because there's no bathrooms. And so it's so- And we demonize that and we illegalize that. And it's just some people at the end of the day, you have a house you can go home to and and use the rest of them. And and yeah. Yeah. And so dumb. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Very dumb. And these are real problems. And it just boils down to we, we treat certain people with certain assets, like they are human beings deserving of those things. And then we criminalize or demean or ignore and walk around um, other uh, behaviors that that makes sense. I'm very interested in like, uh, I always tell, like I just like asking questions. Um, I'm very open to being wrong. I'm very open to learning, but um, you can circle that with a question, what you just said about the public urination. Um, why? And I don't think a lot of people think why they're just like, oh, that's disgusting. And yeah. I can't believe people do that. Well, take a minute and pause and ask that some questions. Why might that be mm-hmm. uh, the case? And, and, you know, when you, when you have, when you're treated as less than, um, you're not going to like have the same level of respect that, that others have for things like uh, you know, a, a train. Does that make sense? Like, you're not going to have the same level of reverence for uh, public libraries, for museums, as uh, as someone who that's like a, a leisure activity, mm-hmm. um, or very easy to afford, or very easy to have uh, access to. Yeah, it's something so. you. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um. As I was preparing for this, um, I don't know if like I don't know if you you know if you know this about me, but I've been I've been I study Italian, and so I have a I I uh, have an Italian teacher, and we talk Valentina. We talk every Friday for an hour or two, and at this point now we just speak, we just have conversations, and so she was one of my first guests on the podcast, and so she was always asking about you know what's going on. So I told her about about you and our conversation, and she was just shocked because of course in Europe, they have so many more services than we do. And she explained to me, aside from like normal social work kind of service, and I want to get into like some of your comments that you, about that, but like, I think it's called a patrono, patrono or something like that. Um, she's going to laugh at me for messing this up, but I'd have, <laughs> I'd have to look it up in our, our, our Skype conversation, but they have a service that's for free. That's for anybody that you can, uh, pre-COVID, you could just walk in, but now you make an appointment um, and they're generally elderly people. And you can ask them questions about like, how does, how do you register at the university or how to sign up for classes? Or uh, if like, 
she just had a baby. She's like, and they like, can go in there. Like, how, how do you sign up for like, what services does the government have to get bottles or diapers or, you know, if you move to a new city, where do I, where do I register to vote? And it's free. And I'm like, do like, like, do you have an, I was like, do you have to make an appointment? Like, what, what if your time runs out? Do you have to make another appointment? She's like, you just talk to them until you're done. And this is something that's, this is not a library. This is a separate service. Yeah, it's a totally separate service. I asked that only because everything you just described are are questions I fielded as a librarian. So again, a lot of the onus is put on libraries and librarians, whereas there could be a separate institution like, like that. But that's fascinating to me that Italy and many, many other countries have many people to share that burden. And I sort of make arguments, not the right word, but sort of stance within the book is like the library in America is really playing the roles of so many other sort of failed institutions or failed systems in a way that it like absolutely shouldn't end up and doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, we are just not great uh, in America with uh, community care and, and empathy. Um, and addressing so many of these larger sort of systemic um, issues. I think we're getting better, you know, especially with the pandemic and people having time to sort of sit with realities of things. But yeah, I mean, that's fascinating to me that that's everything you just said about what she described being services. Those are all types of questions or exact questions I had people come in and ask um, in the library in addition to all the other, you know, hats that I wore, you know? Yeah. So let's explain that a little bit more. Cause I think I want to make sure people understand that. Cause like, I understand a little bit more of what you're talking about because of the things I read before this, but like, mm-hmm. um, to me, the library was, that's a place where I can go get books. And I, I told you, I recently discovered I can make photocopies there and they have a stapler and I can sit and read my books and not spend uh, $12 on coffee and whatever, mm-hmm. or feel guilty that I'm taking up a table or whatever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. That is my really privileged perspective because I'm, I'm not unhoused. So when I would start reading about, you know, in some of the articles that to research for this, so you, uh, you or other people had mentioned libraries filling social service roles and helping people figure out where to get um, help for drug addictions and things like that. Like, let's kind of give people an overview of like other things that libraries do that I think 90% of Americans don't have any idea yeah, I mean that that is like an unending list, and sure. uh, and that speaks to the magnitude of how many roles that they're filling. I can give um, a few examples sure. that I think are also known. So many many library systems, um, DC when I was there was not one of them. Uh, libraries carry Narcan, um, naloxone to to undo um, an opioid um, overdose. Um, librarians are trained in the administration of Narcan. That's a very big push. Um, many public libraries now are clean needle exchanges yes. um, for people who are, are struggling with addiction. Um, so one of the interviews or stories that I was a part of on NPR, I actually had had a previous conversation with a journalist and I suggested that they cover that many um, libraries, public library systems are uh, employing social workers that work for the library. So uh, San Francisco Public Library, uh, a woman named Leah Esguera was the very first librarian social worker in the country. Um, I believe Denver Public Library followed soon after, and then DC uh, also has a full-time 
uh, library social worker, uh, a woman at my time, and I believe she's still there, named um, Jean Beta Lamenti, um, to do some work. But again, going back to just what a librarian is answering from day to day. So um, there are so many things. So like, I often had patrons coming in who had just gotten out of uh, jail or prison who had been in for 10, 20 years and had no idea how to set up an email address. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. The computer lab and working with them on that basic communication. The other flip side of that, I would have people come in who didn't have access to internet or computers who were trying to find out if their friend or their loved one was in prison. So helping them look up um, wow. in this in different systems to find family members. Um, it's helping elderly people who are not very skilled with computers do uh, paperwork for whatever they might need. Um, a lot of a lot of computer skills, a lot of sitting next to someone at a computer helping them uh, do things, which it's hard because there's often not the needed time to sit and 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 do those things. And it's a lot of sort of like band-aid solutions where someone's coming up to the circulation desk and you're trying to help them as much as you can, but you also see that there's three people um, behind them. And all of the same things that people are used to, you know, helping people with um, research. Um, it, a lot of times it was just printing Google map directions where someone pops into the library because they know it's a place where they can get basic help. And hey, I, I'm trying to get to the Library of Congress, but I don't know how to get there and uh, printing walking directions. Wow. Um, and then there was one other thing that I was thinking of, but yeah, I mean, the social workers, I want to circle back to that because Jean is a wonderful person, the social worker for DCPL, but uh, there were, there's 28 branches, I believe in the system and, and there's one her um, and she worked with oh, a, a really, yeah. And she worked with a really great team of formerly unhoused people to, to go to libraries. And so they would kind of do um, like, they'd spend a month where on every Tuesday or every Tuesday and Thursday, they'd be set up in a corner um, if people wanted to come up and uh, ask for help and, and talk to somebody who who knew um, their background and um, what it's like to to be unhoused. So there are some partnerships like that. But again, you know, Jean, one month out of the year for a couple of days was able to be um, in in each individual space. So I'm really thankful things like that are happening, but you know, it's not quite enough. And then it's things, another thing, like, I can't tell you how many times patrons um, would have, you know, psychotic episodes in the library, you know, they're spending mm -hmm. all their time there, they're struggling with their mental health, and learning how to talk people down from psychosis. And, and sometimes that's directed at you where they think that you are doing something or the photocopier actually was oh. interestingly um well technology is a really um like sort of trigger is not the right word but something especially for people who might have symptoms of like schizophrenia there's a lot of um weariness of of technology and you know having to explain like the copier is not you know, stealing your brain um, and, and and navigating that in the right. middle of like, I'm trying to help, you know, this person do paperwork and this, and I'm not, this isn't a complaint. It's just like libraries are coming together of uh, a lot of, of larger problems and, and librarians, you know, at least when I got my MLS, were not so much trained in, right. in that side of things. And again, that's what I meant when I said that, that my interest in social work was a very big positive that I, I had some basic. Yeah. Um, okay. 
Yeah. Yes, so that's a, like I said, the over that's like impossible to give a real overview because there's just so many, um, so many roles and, and, and so many layers to things. Yeah. Um, well, that come to a head in the library space. Right. No, it's just, I mean, just, just, just somewhere in one of the things I read, it talked about you having, having to hit a panic button. Like it never would have occurred to me that there are panic buttons in the library. My experiences in the library has always been very tranquil and quiet. And that's like the furthest thing that, that's, I, I never, I never ever would have occurred to me that, that that's an issue or something I read in one of, one of your things about people throwing things at you and, and yell at you and like, and, this, and like you said, psychotic episodes and just um, the fact that, yeah, if, if you hadn't had an interest in social work, you probably wouldn't have lasted very long because you'd be like, this is not what I signed up for. And you would have been in the rock and roll hall of fame library or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason it was about six and a half years in total that I was a librarian and, and I've left the field. You know, I, I describe myself as a, as a former librarian now. And mm -hmm. um, in the book, one entire chapter is about empathy fatigue. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but I can totally um, imagine what that means. Yeah. Yeah. People in helping professions. Um, so nurses, doctors, firefighters, and librarians, those are kind of four of yeah. the, the major people impacted by it. But um, when you're sort of exposed to um, trauma, your own, and then secondhand trauma um, daily, uh, that, that is a lot um, to, to take on, you know, bo body, mind and, and soul. And, uh, you know, one of, uh, the piece that I wrote in the Los Angeles times that actually, um, upset quite a few people. Um, I did not pick the title that was, that was the editors. And I think part of it was a little bit for clickbait, but, uh, the title that they gave it online was, um, being a librarian, gave me symptoms of PTSD or gave me PTSD. I forgot what they, how they worded oh, it, but yeah. I, I did end up, and a lot of people were like, you can't claim PTSD. You're not a war veteran. You're not this, that, or the other thing. And, and, you know, it was an 800 word count. Uh, it's very hard to put the whole story in there, but yeah, many, many things happened, um, in my work that ultimately did result in, in a diagnosis of um, complex PTSD, which had some things to do with my life pre-libraries, but mostly um, a lot of some of the things that happened mm -hmm. in the library space. And so uh, for as much criticism as I got from some people not familiar really with the, the full scope of librarian work or library work, um, and then I got a lot of support from librarians um, who, who intimately understood how that had happened and and how I I got there and um, also in the book I I do I interviewed seventy five um, librarians about wow yeah about that um, and I I off the top of my head I don't have the exact statistic but um, a very good maybe close to fifty percent of them said that they were experiencing or had experienced empathy fatigue a high percentage uh, talked about experiencing verbal abuse at work, um, a much smaller number had experienced physical abuse. Um, but there, you know, um, there are a lot of things, like I said, that come to a head in public library spaces. And that does mean they are free and open to the public and the public doesn't just include, um, you know, the people that you're friends with or the people you most align with. And it, it includes um, everyone for better, and worse. Um, and yeah, that's a whole other 
beast of, of having to, with years separation now, I've been out of the libraries for about three years to, to come back to deep, deep empathy and understanding for, for even the people who, um, you know, caused me harm um, mm -hmm. and understanding their story and how they, they got there. But during the work, that was very hard for me to find my, my footing in those um, that those feelings of compassion and empathy. And that is exactly what empathy fatigue is, is you stop yeah. able yeah. to have that uh, empathy. I found, you know, when you're in a situation that feels painful or abusive or hurtful, it's really, really hard to be Zen and forgiving. Mm -hmm. Cause I, but if you, if you can step away from that, that's when you, that's when there's at least a chance for that but some people carry it with them and they're always angry. And then they, you know, but it's like, but I was like, it's like, if a, if a dog's biting you, you want the dog to stop biting you kind of yeah. a situation. Um, what without, without giving away any spoilers or anything in the book. So like, <laughs> what is it you want? Why, why did you write this? What is it? What is it you were hoping? Uh, like what message were you hoping to get out? So if, if people understood, um, you'd be happy. Uh, yeah. When I was in the libraries and when I first left, I was desperate for people to understand this kind of other side of it. Um, and, and I write about this in the book. Um, it's been a long journey. Um, there was a lot of anger when I was in it. And when I first left, um, mm -hmm. anger with the public library system, anger with people in charge, anger with patrons. Um, and, and that kind of evolved into anger with myself. Um, and it, is, it has been a, a journey to come to um, a good place within myself and my relationship to libraries, but I, never forgot that desperation and what that felt like that no one understood. And so any interview um, that I did, any article that I wrote, and some of them, I, I regret some of the things that I said or the, the ways that I said them, because I was still in like a lot of hurt and pain. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was again, a, a desperation. I just wanted people to understand. And I, and I feel so lucky that I was able to find a publisher and an agent and somebody who also understood the importance of, of telling a broader story of what it is to be a librarian, what it is that American public libraries are doing, um, and how ultimately, my ultimate, ultimate goal with the book is how we might use that information to move forward better as a society and, and culturally. So the library is a metaphor screaming about so many of the issues um, in, in the United States with mm -hmm. um, how we treat other people with, uh, with systems that have failed around mental health um, and, and people who are unhoused. Um, and so the ultimate goal is I want people to, the fact 
the fact that so many people love libraries still is proof that we do believe in community care. We mm -hmm. do believe in equal access. Um, we do believe in the power of caring for, for others. And, and I guess my, my greatest hope, there's a piece of me that just wants my story to be heard, of course, but I want it to be heard in a way that changes um, how, we, how we move forward. And uh, this isn't a spoiler, but I, what I always say to people, because some of it is, is darker stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of actually, when I was in the process of, of trying to sell the book, a few of the publishers who said no, flat out said, this is too dark and people don't want to read this. And this was just before COVID. I think if I, if it had been a couple months later, that feeling would have been different. Um, but I remember that just like gutting me. Um, and there, there are a lot of dark sides to it. One chapter of the book opens with a list of uh, librarians and library workers who have been murdered by patrons. There oh. is, so wow. there are dark sides to this, but what I always say to people is like, what the book ends on um, is hope sure. and, and forgiveness and empathy. And, and the reason it's called reckoning is that reckoning involves sitting with all of it. Mm -hmm. Not just the, the, the horrible parts, um, not just the great parts, but really sitting, sitting with all of it um, and having uh, a reckoning, which, which leads to change. And it's not, those things aren't comfortable. And, and throughout the book, I mirror, you know, it's part memoirs, part sort of deep dive into public libraries. The memoir piece of it is like, I had to do my own reckoning. Um, as I wrote it, um, as I reflected back on, on mistakes that I made. Um, and I think right now, uh, sort of culturally, there's, there's like, there's a resistance to, uh, to, to reckoning on a institutional um, oh. level. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right. I, I think that that's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that you, it's so, it's so cool that, five-year-old Amanda wanted to write a book and that all the things in your life brought you to this experience and that you carried that forward. Cause I don't know, you know, five-year-old Amanda was probably wasn't um, interested in exposing the problems with uh, our, our, our society's inability to, to deal with its shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. but the, I was not life, thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> life puts you in those circumstances and you, and you said yes to that. And I, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful every time anyone, uh, but in this case, you bring something like that to people's attention because uh, my, my experience with libraries, like I said, is I go there and I'm still excited that I'm still excited that there, there, that I have access to all these big, pretty books and a safe, quiet place to read. I had no idea that they were filling in this whole other gap in all our services but it's but also it's not surprising when you look at you know teachers that are having to do that and police officers getting called when it's really a mental health issue and yeah. on and on and on and on all the, the problems that um that our society has and you know i, I these things in, in today's world when we can't like you look at the current infrastructure project if if somebody put a bill up that said if the libraries didn't exist and somebody proposed it, 
holy smokes man you communists go back to russia we're never gonna every time, like every time there's an iteration of that somebody somebody sends it to me in a text message or you know 10 people do uh yeah yeah and i would ultimately make the argument that like we wouldn't be here if there hadn't been libraries like we wouldn't have gotten this far as society if they if they hadn't existed so and certainly if they came up now they would not come into creation but i don't think we would be here without libraries period no have you have you like read like I feel like, like read, like, 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 cause like Ben Franklin set up the first library. Have you, you read that whole story? That, that's, yeah. that's so charming and fun that he was so excited about books and gathered people together and convinced them to put all their books into one spot. So other people could read them. Yeah. It was um, the, Junto, the Junto club in uh, Philadelphia. So I go into the whole, the whole history of how we, sweet. how we got libraries. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating. And I tried to look for, uh, the lesser known people. So Benjamin Franklin, um, Andrew Car Carnegie, uh, those are the ones that lots of people know, but I, I tried to find some other people involved uh, in it. So that's one of my favorite chapters actually is sort of the history of how in the world they came to be. Yeah. Have you been to Florence, Italy? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, I've, I've been there twice and both times I haven't been able to go into this library, but one time I stayed in an Airbnb that looked at it. <laughs> it Ooh. was like, like uh, the, the, I think it was Lorenzo. Uh, I know I've got that wrong. It's one of the Medici people established the first library in Europe after Rome fell and all the libraries disappeared. Like in this yeah. library, you know, so this was in the 1400s that, and it's still there and you can go in there and they get the big books when, with chains on them and all this stuff, because, but, but he did this, he was like, like the doing what Franklin did is like, all right, I know all these rich people and we have all these books, let's put them in a spot where everybody can have access to them. And yeah. that, you know, that was in Florence. Um, and so we forget that like, you know, Rome for all of its problems did have libraries. You know, people, and, and, and when, when that system fell apart, you know, the leaders of Europe for centuries were illiterate warlords. And it was, you know, the right. monks and the monks in Ireland and, and then people in Constantinople that kept reading alive and then respread it through the Renaissance, you know, so. No, they've done it. They've been around forever. And I, in the introduction of the book, I talk about, you know, like the true earliest forms of libraries. We can go even further back is like, um, indigenous Americans and, and uh, carvings on caves, which is a way yeah. of, of communicating and story. Like, I mean, libraries have been around forever. They're not going anywhere. That gets brought into question all the time. And that used to be a question early on that I was asked, like, do you think that? And I'm like, they will never, they will never stop being relevant. I just, I don't, I don't ever see a, a, a world where some form of, of public libraries are not um, relevant and needed and hopefully cherished and funded and upheld. Yes. But might we do that in America with like a little more, um, you know, other institutions uh, doing some of the, the work that we have sort of put on or has fallen on libraries and librarians. Awesome. Libraries well, anywhere. I hope not because I love them and uh, they're, they're, they're a wonderful institution. Um, 
So yeah, I went, I went, <laughs> I was like, I, I can't wait to get my, my copy of your book. It'll be in March. And I ordered it from left bank books, which is like <laughs> one of the few little like local bookstores that are still around. So, and I can ride my bike there. So I'll ride my bike yeah. and pick up your book next March and oh, uh, read that as I begin the new phase of my life. Um, speaking of which, uh, you're, so somehow you went from Buffalo to DC and now you're in the desert. Let's like, how did, what's going on there? Okay, everybody, that's a wrap for this, which is going to be the first of two parts with Amanda. Um, I've done this a few times, uh, partially because um, there was a good stopping point because the first part of the interview, interview, we mostly focused on her work as a librarian and the things that led her to writing her book and what the book was about. And then the second half was more about her as a writer and a human and uh, just general life things that I found interesting and I wanted to keep in there. But in, I think I just, you know, I just decided to break this up into two, two spots and I thought that was a perfect place to end this one and pick up for next one. And I'll go ahead and release both of them this week uh, if I can get them edited. So I think I will be able to. But, uh, so in the meantime, um, I hope you like that. I, I, I enjoyed my time with Amanda, She's such a smart, amazing, interesting person. I hope you really like that. So go to, uh, Amanda Oliver.com and that's where you can find more information about her book and you can order it, or you can of course order it at your favorite local bookstore and have it waiting for you in March. Like I did. Um, you can also find lots of, uh, examples of her other writing, her essays and things like that. She's an amazing writer. And, um, so go check that out. I kind of get a sample of what her writing, but the writing there is different. You know, she's writing the writing, she, the essays that she posts are more personal. Um, but I found them quite, quite beautiful. So I think you'll enjoy those. Um, yeah. So check that out. Give her a follow on Instagram. Uh, look at her, look at her website and learn all about that stuff. So that's what I got for, for this episode. Um, I'm, as we're, as we're approaching the end of the year, it's uh, early November. I'm thinking I'm getting close to the end of my first season and then I'm going to take a pause between seasons. So this will be episode 50, the second second part of Amanda's interview will be 51, and then I think I'm going to do kind of a wrap-up summary at the end, so that way I'll hit my, my goal was, was one a week, so 52 episodes. Um, I started in the first week of January, so I will have hit that, so I keep kept that promise to myself, and I actually hit it early, which... You know, I'm not like, it's not a competition or anything weird like that, but I'm happy about that. But I'm feeling like I need a pause, you know, between my day job stuff as I'm, as I'm in the finish, uh, the last stages or finish line or whatever you want to call it of this, uh, other career of mine that the work there is picking up compounded with the holidays and all the things. So yeah, I'm going to pause there. Cause yeah, I'm, I've got some new equipment I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how can I do video and I want some time and space so that I can plan out what this will look like in season two, which uh, I'll launch, you know, in, in January again. So I will be 
up and running them. So it doesn't mean I won't do some bonus episodes between now and then, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm just letting you know that. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, so yeah, if you like what I'm doing, please like it. Please subscribe, give it some stars wherever you listen and tell your friends so that um, we can help. I'm, I'm getting so many good stories and feedback about people and things that they've tried or new things that they've done uh, or changes they've made in their life, either from the, the podcast or from my book. So um, please help me share the message so it maybe can help other people too. So that's what I got. Uh, I'm going to end it for now. I, I hope this was helpful for you. I hope that you learn something from it to help you along the way uh, as you make your way through your life and say yes to your dreams and enjoy your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you.